Welcome to the Pod 20, and my special guest this week is Saruti Bala from the True Crime Podcast, Red Handed. It all started on the 4th of August 2002. Ten-year-old Jessica Chapman rang her friend Holly Wells, and she arranged to go over to her house. And at 11.45, she hopped off on her merry way. Jessica had just got back from Menorca, and in true pre-teen fashion, she had bought her friend a necklace with a H on it, and she wanted to give it to her. So Jessica had told her parents where she was going, and she toddled off just 700 yards to her friend Holly's house. When she got there, another school friend named Natalie Parr was already there. The three girls played on the computer for a bit, then Natalie went home at lunchtime. Can you imagine being Natalie's parents? Oh my god. With like everything that happens next, imagine it so easily could have been her as well. Mate, I had totally forgotten about that part of the story, that there was another girl there that day, at least at the start. And as soon as I read this, it came flooding back, remembering, thinking how Natalie Parr's parents must have spent the last 17 years feeling. It's shocking. I'll talk to Saruti soon and find out why they swear so much on the Red Handed podcast. The film critic Anna Smith will be on to tell us about the UK critics' circle. Hollywood sitcom writer and director Ken Levine will tell us exactly how an American sitcom is filmed. Seattle radio personality BJ Shea will talk about how he had to take a good hard look at himself and sort his life out. Gemma Moore, one of the stars of the lockdown horror film Host, will be on to talk about her podcast, The Hobbycast. But first a reminder, from Monday, you can only listen to this show in groups of six or less. I'm Graham Mack and the Pod 20 is heard on Podcast Radio on DAB in London, the home counties, Manchester and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. Into the chart now and at number 20, The Midpoint with Gabby Logan. Gabby is middle-aged and unashamed, but what does it mean to be at the halfway stage of your life? Gabby talks candidly to well-known faces about their own midlife challenges. Gabby's latest guest is the retired sprinter, Michael Johnson. At 19, Red-Handed, the true crime podcast presented by Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. Saruti, your podcast, it's a bit sweary, isn't it? So we it's are uh, very it, it's so so the two of you you'll be debating a, a motive for instance and it'll really get quite heated and when I first listened to it that really took me back and then I thought <laughs> then, then I thought no no this is this is this is real and I think that's what that's what you've done um, which is unique and and obviously people like it now. You know, I, I don't know if I was approaching, and I don't know whether it's because I've had years in broadcasting, if I was approaching a podcast about true crime, I wouldn't even think to make it sweary. <laughs> so so how did you get there? Again, Graham, I would just say none of this was planned. None of our uh, now brand was sat down and thought out. I think we sat down and thought out what our brand was um, and like what the elevator pitch for our podcast was about a year and a half into making the show and it already being live. And uh, I think the sweariness, um, the realness, which 
this that is what we want red handed to be we want it to feel like um yes we're discussing the political the cultural the social the the real legal sides of a case and we go into the research we spend hours and hours and hours doing the research we take it very seriously but we still kind of want it to feel i guess we kind of want it to feel like for some reason you're hanging out at the pub with your mate who just happens to know for some inexplicable reason, this case in an immense amount of detail, and they're telling you about it over a pint. That's what we want it to feel like. And uh, we, we want it to feel casual and so people can follow along. But I think because we are real and because the sweariness, once you get over that, I think some of the Americans at the start found it a bit hard because they are a less sweary folk than we are, I would say. But I think once they do get over that, we want it to feel like it's just your potty mouth friend who loves talking to you about murder every time you see them. And uh, yeah, I, I guess it's just worked somehow, but none of it was pre-planned. It's just come out in a very authentic way um, because Hannah and I just turned on a mic and we thought, let's see what happens. And that is the tip I would give to anyone who wants to start a podcast. Don't over-engineer it. Don't overthink it. Don't sit down and try and think of a plan Um when you're first starting the beauty of podcasting is the barriers to entry are so low you don't need to be a broadcaster you don't need someone to you know send a send a sample of your recording to somebody and for an executive somewhere to say yes that's the voice of tomorrow let's get them in you can just start and you've got nothing to lose buy a cheap mic get yourself a cheap hoster and then if it fails give up but maybe don't just try tweak it and uh, i think that's what we did Um, just do it would be my advice for sure. Well, it worked because Red Handed is at number 19 this week on the Pod 20. Coming up, I want to find out what podcasts you listen to. At number 18, it's The High Low, a weekly conversation between the writers Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. At 17, Girls on Film, the all-female panel talk about movies. One of the hosts is Anna Smith, who is also the chair of the UK Critics Circle. Tell me about that. Right, so it's over 100 years old and it's got several sections including music and theatre and I'm the chair of the film section. I used to be the president of the entire circle for a two-year term Um, and it is a group of the top critics in the UK and um, we meet to share our experiences and many of us have award ceremonies so the film section has a a sort of very well thought of uh, ceremony every year where most of the A-listers turn up but really it's about upholding the values of criticism and making sure that we all represent what we're reviewing fairly and that so what are what are the values of criticism because a lot of people I'm sure would argue that critics have no values uh, well, these are, these are the things that we, we, it's important for us to discuss as well. It's like, you know, how do you stay relevant and what are the problems facing critics and one of the biggest problems currently facing critics is getting paid. So, um, I, you know, it used to be that you could have a job for life on a paper and you would be the critic for that paper. And obviously in recent years since the internet and such like, um, it has become a lot harder, um, not only to get paid for your work, but also for audiences to distinguish between bloggers or you know people who just kind of mouthing off online and critics who um, have made it their career and their passion and have seen a lot of films and approach it in a fair manner and I think while I think some great critics have actually started off blogging so I'm not sort of sagging off bloggers or anything like that but I think there, there is, it is, can be hard to see the wood for the trees sometimes now um, because there are so many opinions flying out everywhere. So actually, uh, that's why I think criticism is increasingly relevant because people need to find experts who really are going to be 100% fair and well-informed. 
and I think right now, especially with the scene as there's so much choice with the Amazon Prime and Netflix and everything, we're just overwhelmed and you just you need to filter out the bad ones and look for the stuff that you might find interesting. So never been more important. Uh, yeah, you know, we've been spending, we, we watch hundreds of movies a year, you know, so the chances are if you go to a, a, a critic who does it for full time, then they'll have seen a lot of that stuff on Netflix or wherever and they'll be able to, you know, steer you in the right direction. So what is the best film ever made? Ever? Oh, that's my least favourite question. <laughs> i got to ask it. It's part of the no, rules, isn't it? You've got to ask them what the best film ever is. Yeah, um, I think that's subjective, and I think my answer would vary depending when you ask me. Um, I think there are many, many, many wonderful films. Um, you, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Mike Lee's work, so things like Secret and Lies, you know, there's slightly more understated character-driven films, what I personally favour more than anything. But in terms of the big screen experience with wide appeal um, and something that struck a chord with me when I was young, which I think is probably, if you're going to say, favorite film rather than best film okay. I'd, say, I'd say back to the future yeah yeah it, and the it, first one better than the other two they never quite got it right on the other two i think number two was really good actually i, I found it, number two more of just a link film between one and three uh, no, no. even though the technology was of a higher spec because they could use that they, that technique where he played mm -hmm. you know multiple characters and 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 well multiple actors played multiple characters yeah. There was just something about one. I don't know. Just uh, I don't know. Okay, but okay. All right. Back to the Future. Yeah, I'll give. I'll give you that. I'll give you. I won't argue with you on that one at all. It's what sparked my love of cinema. I think age fifteen, just watching it on Christmas Day, sitting on the bed, just going, "Oh, this is the magic of cinema." You know. Well, talking of time travel, mm -hmm. uh, in twenty thirteen, you wrote a great article in the Guardian, and it was called "Why Can't Women Time Travel?" And you you gave plenty of examples of movies and in particular poor old Rachel Adams who had been in three movies that were about time travel including the time traveler's wife and she didn't get to have the adventure um, that was back in 2013 and it was a great article and and I know this is something that you, you care deeply about because of the podcast's title which we'll get to in very 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 soon it's since 2013 we now have a female doctor in Doctor Who. Has Jodie Whittaker thanked you personally? Because clearly that article is why she got that gig. That's so true. Thanks for the credit for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you noticed that and that they were the BBC were listening to that. Um, yeah, I mean, our TV, interestingly, um, is always ahead of movies when it comes to representation because they can afford to take more risks. And you'll find that with the big studios, obviously, you've got um, whole panels of, of money, men, which generally are men, um, kind of making the decisions and going, you know, female lead for this, that, the other, not sure we can take that risk. And of course, it's much more complicated than that. But when I spoke to Russell T. Davis, actually, for an article, he was he was saying that that, you know, TV is generally you're allowed to take a few more risks and to be a bit more kind of forward thinking. And I think that's that's where the, the fact that, you know, the Doctor Who, the female Doctor Who has come before cinema having any anywhere near anything as exciting as that. Like we haven't had a female James Bond, for example. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, BJ Shea, he does the breakfast show at a radio station in Seattle, and he's a massive Doctor Who fan. And I asked him about Jodie Whittaker, and he said she's the best Doctor they've ever had. And he's a proper Whovian. So, yeah. I, yeah. I, I forgot to mention, though, it was because of you. And I'm oh, gonna right. Give, yeah, next I'm going to give you yeah. the credit. <laughs> Thank you.
Anna Smith from Girls on Film. The podcast is at number 17 this week on the Pod 20. And we were talking about BJ Shea. His podcast, BJ Shea's Geek Nation, is doing well on the chart. We'll check in with BJ in a bit. At number 16, it's the Joe Wicks podcast. Joe Wicks asks some of his mates about their secret to physical and mental happiness. This week, Joe talks to the tubby, irritating, mockney celebrity chef, Jamie Oliver. Back to the chart in just a minute. Right now, let's check in with my special guest. It's Saruti from Red Handed, the true crime podcast. What podcasts do you listen to? The one that I listen to that is like sort of an ongoing podcast, like weekly, like Red Handed. I love Last Podcast on the Left. Last Podcast on the Left. Okay, so so tell me about that. So they're they're huge. They are absolutely enormous. They're one of the probably biggest true crime podcasts in the US. They're just three guys. Um, They're just, they're very, I guess they were the inspiration for Red Handed because we we liked the very factual podcasts like Case File, like um, the serialized ones like Serial or Dr. Death. There have been so many fantastic ones like that. Uh, but we also love the really chatty, frivolous ones as well that we listen to, the lifestyle podcasts and stuff. And we were like, but why couldn't we do the factual with the frivolous? And I think that is what Last Podcast did. They're very comedic. They're very uh, lighthearted. They're very jokey. But they take their research very seriously. So I I like their personalities and I have respect for their work. And that's what we wanted Red Handed to be, where we never drink on the show. I know there's a big trend of like drinking while you're chatting on uh, on podcasts. We never do that. We are consummate uh, professionals on the show. But uh, yeah, it's all very, um, that's what we kind of tried to mimic with the show, I guess, from last podcast. But other than that, I just, I've listened to so many good 10 part, six part, 10 part serialized podcast last year, which I would just, if you're into true crime, I would definitely recommend. So I think uh, my two standouts were probably Dr. Death and um, Root of Evil. They just blew me away. Absolutely phenomenal production. So good. Such good investigative journalism. Like, it's not what we do. We are not investigative. So I have full credit to them for what they do. It was fantastic. Great. All right. So what are you looking forward to? You're looking forward to getting back on the road? Yes, absolutely. We cannot wait. That is the next big thing. I think at the moment, lockdown's been a bit of a bummer because, like I said, we couldn't do the tour. We couldn't do any live appearances or any live shows, which we really wanted to do, especially coming off the back of the tour at the end of 2019. But I think the the, the blessing in disguise that 2019 has been, uh, 2020 has been is that it's just allowed us to really double down on the show. Yeah. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do anything else. We couldn't plan any uh, live tours. So we've just given 100% to the show and it's really paid off. So, yeah, it's been a solid uh, momentum building year, I like to call it, in our red-handed business meetings. <laughs> and next year you'll be getting the gold award as well, clearly, because the, uh, so. the trend has been I established. Saruti so. <laughs> Bala. Well, is it, do I, by the way, is it, do we use your full name or are you like Madonna? I, there's not many Sarutis in the <laughs> podcasting world, so let's go with Saruti, you know? Saruti it is then. And later on, I want to find out about how much attention you pay to podcast metrics and how it affects how you present Red Handed. At 15, Sword and Scale. This is a true crime podcast covering the dark side of humanity and human nature. 14, 
the Ezra Klein Show, winner of the 2020 Webby and People's Voice Awards for Best Interview Podcast. Ezra Klein brings you far-reaching conversations about hard problems, big ideas, illuminating theories, and cutting-edge research. At 13, it's Hollywood and Levine from the Hollywood scriptwriter and director Ken Levine. Ken, you've worked on some big shows, uh, Frasier, Everybody Loves Raymond, Cheers, MASH. When they film a sitcom, do they film them twice? Uh, no. Oh, um, so l- let me in. How does it work, getting one of these shows to air? Well, l- let me say that, that our shows were not filmed twice, but... All of the Norman Lear shows that were on tape, like All in the Family and the Jeffersons, One Day at a Time, Good Times, Maud, those were filmed twice. They would do a 5.30 taping, and then they would do an 8 o'clock taping, and then they would just use the best takes. Shows that were done on film, film was expensive. So we didn't have the luxury of doing that. The way it would work, let's take a Monday through Friday because an episode would take five days to do. The first day, we have the table reading, where all of the actors sit around the table and read the script out loud. That takes place at about 11 o'clock in the morning, and then the actors spend the rest of the afternoon just kind of getting it on its feet with the director, and the writers go back to the writer's room, and we rewrite. We go gee, uh, this is kind of confusing, or she drops out of the story, we need to give her more, or this scene doesn't work. And, you know, the the rewrite on the, the first day can go from four or five jokes, or the show's a little long, let's make a couple of trims, to let's throw this thing out and, and do something else. Wow. And then we, that, that's happened on a couple of occasions. Those are fun weeks. So... The cast is given a new script at 9 o'clock on Tuesday morning, and then they get it on its feet and work it out with the director. And then at about 4 in the afternoon, there's a run-through, and the writers all come down to the stage, and we watch, they're still holding their scripts at the time, we watch a run-through of the episode. And based on that and, you know, hearing from the cast or the director what they're having trouble with, what doesn't seem to work, you know, we see ourselves what doesn't seem to work. We go back to the office and then we rewrite that night. Sometimes we're there till 7.30 and it's just a few jokes here and there. Other times we're there when the sun comes up at six o'clock in the morning because we've rewritten the crap out of it. So now it's Wednesday. They get a new script. Again, we see a run through of the new material. And then we go back to the room and rewrite again. The script that the cast then gets late Wednesday night, early Thursday is basically the script. That's the script they need to memorize. They come in, and now, on Thursday, it's camera blocking. And now all of the camera guys are there, and the crew, and the boom mics, and the makeup people, and stand-ins, and that sort of thing. And the director will camera block the show, which is basically choreographing the cameras, because the show is shot like a play in front of a studio audience, and while it is unfolding on the stage, 
cameras are moving around and getting a two shot and moving over and getting a single. And then a guy walks around the bar and all of a sudden another camera has to pick him up. And then a camera has to go and set for the door because Frazier's going to enter. And so it's a very complicated puzzle to camera block the show. And when you're sitting in the studio audience, it just unfolds and there's like a monitor overhead and you look at the monitor and, uh, okay, yeah, and there's Frazier and there's uh, Niles and, uh, okay, there's this and, there, you know, it's all there. But it's planned out. It's very much like a Rubik's Cube. And it's all done in the one go. That's it. Yeah, wow. it's, uh, one day. It could be a long day. Yeah. And then the actors go home. Sometimes we have a run-through if there's still a troubled scene we need to see, if there's still some rough edges somewhere. But otherwise, it's like, go home and learn it. Yeah. And then the actors really memorize it that night. They come in on Friday at noon. And from noon to three, they rehearse the show with the cameras. Yeah. So... The director can fine-tune some things and make sure everything is right. And then at 3 o'clock, the writers come down for a, a dress rehearsal. And so the cast goes through the show, and the cameras are going, and, you know, the, the director is making notes, and we're making notes. And then after each scene, the showrunner will ask the cast to come to the rail of the bleachers and give some fine-tuning notes. Uh, the cast. That's, that's over at about five. And then we'll still go back to the room and change a line here or there. And then at seven o'clock, you know, the audience comes in at 6.30 and at seven o'clock we shoot the show. And the half-hour show is shot. How long does it take to, to shoot the half-hour show? Well, it depends. We would take about, we'd have the audience for like two hours. Mm -hmm. And then after the audience left, we would take another hour or so and do pickups. Right. But we didn't want to hold up the audience. Yeah. We moved at a brisk pace. Yeah. Friends started filming at four in the afternoon and would end at one in the morning. Wow. Okay. And Friends, because it was such a popular show... They had two audiences. Okay. They had an audience at four. <laughs> had them in shifts. <laughs> yeah. And they burned them out like at eight and they brought in a new audience. Yeah. So the answer to your question is between two and eight hours. Ken Levine from the podcast Hollywood and Levine, which is at number 13 this week. At number 12, Case File True Crime, because fact is scarier than fiction. At 11, On Purpose with Jay Shetty, fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. Let's check in with my special guest now, Saruti, who is one of the hosts of Red Handed, the true crime podcast. And I know you pay a lot of attention to the data. When you get the metrics on the podcast, how does that info affect how you plan and produce the podcast. I wish that we had enough just purely quantitative data that I could use to really understand what uh, sort of our consumers behavior is. But um, unfortunately, the data that we do have access to, like, for example, like I'm sure, you know, Apple Podcasts, we don't even know how many subscribers we have. We don't even know really what's happening in that world. We don't understand how the algorithm works. So many questions. 
But what we do see through ACAST is kind of listenership numbers, uh, the urgency as well with which people listen. So how quickly in the space of how many days do we hit certain milestones? So while generally our episodes tend to even out, so that's a good thing. So people are clearly listening to an episode. But what I love to see is in five days, how many numbers, how many downloads has it hit? And I can sort of tell the urgency with which people listen to that episode makes it to me a more hot episode or a more hot topic but we really depend as well on the anecdotal data so i we are on all the social medias we watch obsessively for people's feedback how excited people are when we put an episode out and that does vary hugely so we've tried to be a bit more sort of risk-taking because i think if we don't take risks and try new types of episodes we're never going to know what works and what doesn't so for example um a risk we took a few years ago was starting to do more current cases Predominantly before that, we had done cases that were adjudicated. They were 10 years old or so, and it was safe to talk about it at that point because everybody had spoken about it already. But one of the few cases, one of the cases that we did um, that was quite recent very early on was when the Charleston shooting, Charleston Church shootings happened in the US um, with that white supremacist Dylan Roof. We did it as soon as he was um, convicted because I was like, I want to get this out there. We've got something to say. It's in the news. We have an, we have a voice to bring to this. Yeah. So that was a big risk because we were like, this has, the dust hasn't settled on this case. But to see people messaging us from the US saying, as a black person in the US, I didn't know if I could listen to this. I didn't know if you guys would handle this properly, only because you don't know. But Or I don't know how much you know. But then after listening to it, I am so moved. And to hear that message again and again, it meant so much to us and it gave us that confidence. So it wasn't just the numbers, it was the actual anecdotal feedback of people saying, you guys nailed this. Then after that, we were like, let's go for it. And so we just started to delve into more and more recent cases. We picked up controversial cases that for some reason other people hadn't covered. For example, the Ian Watkins case, the Last Prophet singer. Yeah. Why? I mean, it's a horrific case. It was a baby who assaulted, he he abused, wasn't it? It was, for anyone that doesn't know, he was a convicted paedophile, but it was like, really really sick i mean the age of it's the victim it's horrific yeah it's horrific um and basically i had to sit and read the court um documents for that case a lot of which wasn't reported by uh, reported on by newspapers because i think there is a line where things are too much for people and uh, we pulled out the bits that i wanted to say and i said to people don't go read it you can very easily find it but don't go read it obviously they all went and read it and they were absolutely horrified but i think um they respected the way in which we approached it and i think we just try to we're not doing it for the sensationalist because we leave out the sensationalist information if you really want to go read it you can but i'm not here to create that kind of podcast but i think um that fear has now gone so we're happy to cover anything and everything there isn't a single case that we would feel scared to talk about and that's a very refreshing place to be in now i think yeah it's a fearless podcast all right saruti i want to find out what experience you had behind the microphone before you started this world beating podcast because i don't think it was a lot i think you just went for it uh, we'll find out about that in a bit i want to get back to the chart now because we're inside the top 10 at number 10 it's newscast from the bbc at nine the daily show with trevor noah ears edition at number eight bj shay's geek nation 
Now, BJ Shea is also the morning radio host on KISW in Seattle, Washington. And BJ, before you moved to Seattle, you worked at a lot of different radio stations. I bounced around the country a lot, um, a lot. My wife is a saint for relocating our young family all those times because I couldn't keep a job. I just, uh, my attitude was not great. I was not great. I wasn't a great worker. I might have been talented. Maybe I was talented, but I was not a great worker. Didn't get along with others. Uh, a lot of stuff up here that I had to figure out eventually. But so, so what yeah, was it I, that made the difference? Did you did you have a an epiphany when you thought, you know, I need to handle this better? Or so was there was there a thing, or was there a mentor in particular that sat you down and said, "Look, kid, you're throwing this all away." This is you, this answer is probably not what you would expect, and yet, I mean, it is the truth. Now, if you were to ask BJ Shea, I would give you a much different answer. But unfortunately, you asked me. Yes, you did. Um, and I'm not proud of this. Definitely, I, I shouldn't say I'm not proud of it. This is a learning moment in my life. It had nothing to do with my career, uh, Graham. It had to do with the fact that I was a raging angry, verbally abusive person in those days. And to, to I who, was people close to you or strangers or yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, uh, the, the closer, yeah, the closer you were, I think the more I was verbally abusive. It, it's one of those, you know, you only hurt the ones you love. Uh, I it, that surely typified with me. So there was a moment in my life where I don't know why, but I was very, very angry and just had a rage fit uh, a verbally abusive tirade with my wife and my probably seven-year-old son and four-year-old daughter. And rage, rage, rage. And finally, my wife is like, you need to just go to the bedroom and that's it. I'm not going to let you talk to us this way anymore. Go to the bedroom. I go to the bedroom to cool off. I'm there for an hour, hour and a half perhaps. And this note is slid under my door. I still have it. I keep it in my wallet with me. It was a defining moment for me. It was, it was a, a, a list of demands by my children. And, you know, Graham, it's written by a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. So stuff that you would put on a refrigerator and that little kid writing. And they were so amazing. I know they were coached by mom because mom's an amazing being. Uh, but it was basically, they were like, dad, this is how we want to be treated. We want you to treat us as human beings. We don't want you to yell at us anymore. We know you're hurting. You need to go get help. It was humbling to read how they saw me. And they were, they were brutally honest, these kids. For, for a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, they were able to come out and say, here's what we're seeing. We want to love you and you make it so hard to do so. I sat, I sat in that moment and I was like, wow. I, and so I, had, I wasn't even thinking about my career at that point. I just had to fix that. I could not let those kids grow up with that person. It just, you know, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it to them. Um, and I can't say that I fixed it overnight. It took me decades. But I went into therapy and worked on the rage and the anger and then really became a student of therapy. And luckily, that transformed everything. It, 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 it made me a better father and a better husband and a better coworker and a better leader. And I always had great people around me in the business. I just was lost in my own illusion of thinking that the world was against me. I, I, it, it's, a, it's a scary thing to think that 
I was functionally delusional is really what I was. I was seeing windmills as attackers. But if you asked me anything else, I would see, I would appear normal. It's like, this is a chair. This is a desk. This is a computer. And that windmill is going to kill me. Hmm. That's the thing with functional delusion is that you seem normal because you're getting probably 80% of it, 90% of it right. But that 10 to 20% is what's making you a danger. And I don't know, you know, I, I'm just an average person. I shudder to think if the rest of the world is functionally delusional. I know that I run into people and I see myself. I'm like, oh, I remember this. When I see somebody you know, railing against something or whatever, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is me. I remember me being like this. Um, so getting clear, realizing that I wasn't being attacked by windmills, meant that I didn't always have to respond with aggression because I just always felt I was defending what, myself. What kind of thing, how did the windmills show themselves? What kind of things were they, the triggers? Well, you know, the, the, the tr and Graham, the triggers are insane. You, if there's um, words that were said by people, by somebody reminding me of a childhood trauma, but I don't know that. If I don't go exploring, if somebody looks like my father, perhaps, or my mother, or if one of my bosses looks that way, or if there's a certain noise or scream, things that took me back to places that I didn't know, my body's having this physical reaction of fight or flight. My mind is like, we are in fight or flight. Would you like me to, we need to find out what the source of the problem is. My mind kept looking at right now. The problem is, is it wasn't right now. It was right. from way back, but my mind doesn't know that. My mind is like, look, we got to figure, we got to stop this. You're, you're in trouble. What are we going to do? Ah, it's that person over there. Let's, let's engage and protect ourselves. And eventually I had to start saying, no, wait a second. What's really going on here? Um, I read a great book called Brain Rules by Dr. John Medina. And he said, basically, we are in a state of such fight or flight that it reminds us of when we were back in the Serengeti and we were running from our lives because we were about to be eaten. He said, but nobody is in that position anymore. And yet some of us are in that state as if in fact you are running from a predator, which is unbelievable that we, our bodies are in that state sometimes when he'd be like, we have the ability to get to that state because, well, there was a time where we were running for predators and we shouldn't be eaten. And our body's like, dude, we're in trouble. Get the blank out of here. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because we, when you're in that, that state, that the blood diverts to the muscles of the arms and legs and it takes away um, blood and oxygen and whatever from the, the higher reasoning of the brain because you don't need that to just run. You need this to run and you need your higher reasoning when you're in a, a, a situation where you know especially if it's a boss or somebody you love you need higher reasoning to deal with complex issues you don't need to be captain caveman which is what you become when you're in the fight or flight state and uh, it's the reason why you know i've i'm sure everybody's had it you have a a, a stupid argument with a boss or somebody close and then later when you're driving home you think why didn't I just say this? And then he would have understood. And it's because your higher reasoning was literally shut down at the time. And so, wow, yeah. So, yeah. So, but you had an extreme version of, of something that everybody has, but you had a, a, an unhealthy version of it. I, you know, Graham, I tell everybody that uh, because I believe currently because of COVID that people are in that state because COVID is definitely something where it could kill you. It's scary. So, 
it's reasonable then to be anxious and even and what people don't understand and behavioral scientists have said this uh and it's not my my words, but they have said this, and in, in, unfortunately, the media doesn't cover it that much, but behavioral scientists, they've, they've been saying, we are all in a state of high anxiety, which is why when people are acting a certain way, you'd be like, why are they doing that? It's for the very reason you said, their higher reasoning is gone because they think they're going to die mm. because of this high state of anxiety, which is really something that I, I think is so important for uh, for me to understand as a human being that if I see somebody behaving badly or somebody doing whatever, uh, that I have to remember, oh, yeah, because I used to be that way. The difference was is that everybody looked at me like, what are you doing? Now everybody's me from all those years ago. I actually have some experience in this because <laughs> I was operating like this, you know, for my own reasons of thinking that my life was in peril. Uh, but it was delusional. The thing is now it's not delusional. And so I, but I have great empathy because I know what this high anxiety state is. But I was forced to learn because my therapist was a really wonderful therapist. He said, I don't try to tell people that they have something wrong because there are some therapies and therapists who will just go and diagnose you and say, well, you have this and you have this, so you should stop doing this. His attitude was, if you believe you were in peril, you are, you are in the same state of somebody who's in peril. And therefore, I need to approach you as if you really were in peril. And, I, and that approach helped out a lot. He approached me as a person that was in trauma because I was in his mind. And then he was able to nurture me and, and calm me down and eventually over the decades teach me how to do that so that when you talk about the higher reasoning being gone and the muscles ready to go and everything going like that, he taught me also to have another voice show up and say, hey, 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 are you really, are you really in danger right now? And with the other voice saying, yes, I am. Are we really, though? Are I think that's a good, up? that's a key point. I know me personally, I'm not, you know, nowhere near those kind of issues, but the, the way I try to deal with it in those situations is to ask myself a question and you did you say are you really and i'll usually ask something something along the lines of how do i really want to come across here to this person and just asking that question turns on some of the higher reasoning of the brain because the brain hates not knowing the answer and, and and questions make it um yeah so there's a little survival technique for anyone who's dealing with it on a milder level than what you had to go through yeah, yeah I, it's, it's a lot of discipline for me, too. But it's, it's, it's helped out my career. Right? That was really what turned my career around was that moment with my kids. Yeah. Um, wow. and, then, and, then I was, and then I realized a lot of great performers actually have had some sort of, you know, it's interesting. In the West, we call it therapy, and it's got a bad name. In the East, it's self-inquiry, and all the great yogis have done it, and it's actually quite revered, but it's the same process. Uh, and that is basically just looking with inside and, so, and, and basically out in self-realization. That's what therapy is, but unfortunately, the West is, especially if you're a man, I don't, what, what, what? No, no, I, will, I, don't, I don't need mental help. Get out of here. BJ, I'm glad I met you after you'd been through it all. I don't think I could have handled you with the... Uh with all those kind of issues going on as well. There was enough going on with the BJ Shea that I met. I'm Graham Mack, and this is the Pod 20, the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts. And BJ Shea's Geek Nation is at number eight this week. BJ will be back next week to talk about how he got into radio. Number seven is David Tennant does a podcast with... 
Number six, No Such Thing as a Fish, the award-winning podcast from the writers of the hit BBC TV show QI. Let's take a break from the chart just for a bit and check back in with my special guest, which is Saruti, who is one of the hosts of Red Handed, a world-beating true crime podcast. It really is uh, taking off this thing. And uh, before you got into podcasting, did you have a background in broadcasting? Absolutely not. Never. Uh, I did my degree and my master's in economics. Did not think I was ever going to do anything other than possibly go work in finance. Uh, I did that straight out of uni and I hated it. It wasn't for me at all. And then I actually went into producing conferences. So I had a really good time doing that. It was like an everyday MBA. It was so strenuous. I got to travel loads. Um, And Hannah was working in commercial theatre in London. She was working on the Motown show. Um, And then, yeah, we just kind of met, started the podcast and then Thankfully, last year, both of us were able to go full-time on the show and never looked back. I wouldn't so do anything else now. this is a full-time gig. Uh, we it are makes money. Now. I know you have, you have commercials and you have sponsors yeah. and you, you, um, you have... What, what do, you, do you call them sponsors? The people who, who like, uh, the subscribers? That's what I'm looking for, isn't it? I guess we would call them, because we've got the, I guess our two streams of revenue would be, um, we work with Acast, who are our platform, and they do the monetization of the show through ads and sponsorships and things like that. And that comes mainly through the number of listens we get. It gets monetized like a few pennies per one of those. But then the main source of revenue that we are currently so grateful for is Patreon. So Patreon. we work through there and the patrons that we have on there, it's like a, to anybody who doesn't know, it's a subscription model that creators can use. And we add uh, Patreon only exclusive content onto that platform. And then if people want to, they can subscribe to it on a monthly basis. The more money they give, the more content they get. So it's completely, um, you know, a free market situation over there. And uh, yeah, that has just enabled us to really get there very much faster, like financial stability wise. And yeah, we are now proud full time podcasters, which I never thought I would say. Of this one podcast, Red Hand. Of this one from podcast. What, so it's not like you've got a podcast, just this, this one podcast is, wow. That's And how and long did it take to get to that point? I think, uh, it, well, it took us two and a half years to yeah. get to that point. Yeah. I know what we like to say is, um, <laughs> it feels like we were in labor with a very difficult baby for about two and a half years. It was just... It was crushing the workload, to be honest, because I think one of the, I wouldn't say it's a mistake. Um, we probably wouldn't have done it had we known better at the time, but our naivety led us to decide it was going to be a weekly podcast. We were going to release an hour long episode every single week. And uh, we did not realize just how difficult that was going to be when we started the research, the scripting, the recording, the editing. And bearing in mind, Hannah and I are completely self-taught editors. We yeah. did not know anything about audio editing at all whatsoever. We used to record under a cupboard under her stairs with a shared £10 mic. The audio quality was atrocious. We have grown leaps and bounds since then, I'm grateful to say. Um, but yeah, it was just so difficult because we both had incredibly uh, demanding full-time jobs as well. So yeah. what were we thinking? I don't know. But uh, every time we would think about stopping... Uh, something amazing would happen and uh, we just felt like no let's just do one more month and see how it goes something amazing like what would happen just um an amazing we would get it's at the start it was just something small like an amazing review we would get an amazing oh i see great yeah Yeah, or someone would just yeah 
Yeah, or just someone would comment on a, the Facebook group or the, or the Instagram and say, you guys completely changed my opinion of that case or I'm so glad how you were able to advocate for that particular victim or something that was the purpose with why we were doing this show. And then it would become, oh, hey, we got a better sponsorship deal this month. Did you see that invoice? That was great. Let's keep going. And then then we got picked up by ACAST quite quickly and it just it was always something there to pull us back in. And uh, now, yes, and we've even managed to hire somebody now who helps with the editing. So it's just, it's just amazing. It's what just a amazing. success story. That's brilliant. That really is good. Thank you. You're an inspiration, Saruti. The podcast is called Red Handed. We're into the top five on the chart now. And at number five, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's lockdown parenting hell. It's parenting, just not as you know it. At four, the hobby cast, Gemma Moore, the actor. She's in the hot lockdown horror movie, Host. If you haven't seen it, check her out in that. She's great. Uh, but the podcast is your passion. Tell me all about the hobby cast. Do you know what I love? So I was sat in a cafe um, in Wilsdon Green and I was uh, listening to my music and this old lady just sat next to me and didn't say anything and just sort of got her food sat next to me and was like looking around. And then she kept like looking at me and I was like, you know what? I'm just not going to be a millennial, whatever. I'm just going to take my headphones out. And I, and I just, and I just took my headphones out. And then she was just like, oh, um, I'm just about to have my breakfast. And so she opened the conversation up and then I started talking to her and I was learning about her hobbies and all that she'd been doing in retirement and all these wonderful things. And I just came away from that. And for weeks after I just felt so amazing and I would tell everyone that you know she liked to sew and she was doing this incredible making this incredible garden and she'd made it into the pattern of like I think her husband's face but like it was just like this wonderful story telling that had come from it and and podcasts I don't know podcasts are f for me feel that gap where I really miss and I got it a lot in the countryside where you can just sit and chat to anyone. Like you'd meet someone with their dog. I got a dog cause I miss talking to people now. Um, and you can just sit and chat and, and learn about what people do. And something where I always noticed this childlike smile was when people talked about their hobbies because it was something where they didn't have to, you know, get any money from it. They weren't doing it for a success thing. It was literally something that made them happy and they had a sense of achievement from it and they got to spend time on their own and it was their own precious thing. And so I just was like, I want to talk to people who have hobbies and I want to know why they do it because you have all this small talk with people at cocktail parties and you don't never get into the detail of it. And if, and I find if I start asking too many questions, people think I'm a bit weird and a bit like, like sort of like why are you interviewing me so then I was like so I'm just going to make an environment where I can interview you um and so I found in the first series uh season which you will be uh playing um I think my doorbell just went do you need to check it mind if I answer expecting it. a delivery yeah yeah okay now this really is like the movie host this is like host. Yeah, because it's 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 the it's it's that that happens to the um to the medium. It's the first yeah. thing that goes wrong. Yeah. Was there somebody there? 
Yeah, it was. Um, it was. It was something that it's all kicking off today. This is the thing about Zoom, isn't it? I mean, Zooming, being in your own home, you have no, there's no control over the, the things. But we've got sanding, we've got deliveries. Anyway, as I was saying, um, what was I saying? I was talking, talking about, about hobbies and meeting people with hobbies and how it's their passion, and you wanted to talk to them more about that, and that's how the podcast started. Yeah, and as an actor, you do many, you wear many different hats. So I do kickboxing, I play the ukulele, I uh, did yoga, um, I went to a breath workshop that I almost fainted in. Like, So I was just like, I want to talk to people about stuff. And I'd heard about Quidditch and being played. The Harry Potter London. game. Yes. In But they so, fly on broomsticks. Yeah, sadly they don't fly in real life, which is sad, but... Did you know it's like a world champion game? Like it's an official sport. So what, like there's like a there's a there's a football association of Quidditch kind of thing with rules and regulations and yeah. Yeah, it's huge in America. Like it's they they have massive tournaments and they have them in Europe and Asia and there's um, they have them in the UK a lot as well. There's one called the uh, the one that um, I. Uh, got the pleasure of interviewing John uh, John Morris, and it was uh, from the London Unspeakables, and they play every Sunday, I think, in Clapham, and they then go and play other teams in UK and have tournaments, and it's huge. And the best thing is, is that they get the golden snitch is like a person that wears a, a tennis ball in a sock that tucks it into the back of their shorts and then runs around and you have to pull <laughs> the sock out, which I think is amazing. And apparently before, because they change the rules all the time. So before they recently changed the rules that the snitch can only stay within so many like yards of the playing field the snitch could go everywhere so the snitch could literally get on a bus and just like go off so you'd have the seekers like go or uh, going around trying to like catch them and they'd be like across down the high street and you'd still be playing here and so and then you'd have to come back from miles away with this tennis ball and a sock as the like hero that ended the game so and and so me and um are actually we're doing, Amma was my guest co-host at the time, Amma Chadha Patel, who is uh, one of the co-hosts on the new season. He was on that with me and we were just, it was great because the more you find out, the more you're like, what? What's going on here? <laughs> like, this is, what, how is that even a thing? And for Amma thought it was his real job. <laughs> and he was like, no, I have an actual job. <laughs> So yeah, so that was fun. And Dungeons and Dragons is something I've always wanted to learn about. I've actually got my new dungeon dice. I'll show you. Look how fancy these are. These are my... So Dungeons and Dragons, you have like six dice. Yeah. Glittery and pretty. Right. So I interviewed this incredible Antonia Tutil, who's actually on Twitch, because now Twitch is this huge gaming site that yeah, I didn't know massive. about. Yeah. And, and the they play on there and then a lot of people play with them. So they have this, you know, a dungeon master and then everyone plays along with them. So it's just incredible thing that I didn't know about. And then I get to interview someone and find out all the details about it and share with all the listeners as well who want to play Dungeons and Dragons. And this is from my point of view, asking questions. So I'm a beginner in all of these things. And so hopefully I can be the voice of many people to ask these questions of like, and a lot of them can be very silly questions like, 
you know, how long does the game go on for? Because a lot of people, I think, get nervous about Dungeons and Dragons going on for years and years and years, but actually you can do it for, you know, three hours and that will be a good game. And you, you know, you make, and I didn't understand if I had to be good at maths because there were dice and that made me a bit like, so, but now I know that it's, that you can have a calculator like I used to have as a waitress. (laughs) Pocket. So what's um, the coolest hobby then that you've, or hobby, the, the person with the coolest hobby that you thought, I wish I could do that, but it's just too cool? I don't think there's been like the coolest. I've really, so Emma Stannard did uh, 80s and 90s toys mm-hmm. collecting. Um, and she brought some of them with her. Like there was one, I think it was a squidgy one where you, it's a, a snuggle bum and you shake it and it's, and it squeals. Um, so I wish I wish that I could collect eighties and nineties toys, but I think it's something that it's a lifetime work because you have to pair things. People pay like hundreds of pounds for those, you know, those little hairbrushes that you would your mum would hoover up or someone would hoover up, or the accessories are actually the most expensive things to these old toys. Like my little the, pony. the weird thing is with them, the ones that people were told were going to be worth a lot of money are not. Like the Beanie None. Babies, people collected them and and kept them in pristine, and they're not worth anything. But other no. stuff that you would never have thought of is worth a fortune. It's strange. You can't predict it. No, like Polly Pockets. Like, Polly Pockets are huge for, like, collections. My Little Pony. Yeah? There's a My Little Pony that's really rare that's pregnant. And when you open its belly, two tiny little My Little Ponies come out. <laughs> Which is so See, cool. that's a horror film right there. That's like Alien meets Black Beauty. I mean, it's right there, ready to go, isn't it? You, should, you could produce that oh i could i could do stop motion i could do like, <laughs> i mean that could be my next hobby stop motion there's some really good apps for that yeah. um, in the new season there's some pretty cool because uh we are just each bringing our own research there are some pretty cool um hobbies that come into play like extreme ironing uh there's also there's a haunted house like haunted houses are things huge in america and you can do haunted camping sites so you can choose how long you want to sleep for so if you want to sleep for like two hours the rest of the night that you camp will you will be haunted in some shape or form in this forest or you can sleep half the night or you can just experience other people getting haunted and just not get haunted at all um and then there's like this one haunted house as a 40 page waiver and like they do, they do. It's for like people who like really extreme things. Like there's like teeth pulling, and it gets it's it's very problematic. But I was like, people enjoy this as an extreme hobby. So we also have like technology. Do you remember Robot Wars? Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you know that Jeremy Clarkson was the presenter on the first ever series of of Robot Wars. Was he? Wow. Yeah, and then he almost got decapitated by a bit of metal flying off one of the, one of the wow, roads. Wow, there's a lot of people probably wish that that had happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people that probably wish that would happen. Yeah, it would have um, changed the face of television as we know it. Yeah, it would have. It would have, I'm sure. I'm sure someone would have taken... taken yeah, there would have been another Jeremy Clarkson ready to take his... Pl- well, I, well, I don't know. We shouldn't really probably speculate on that one. Gemma Moore and 
I hope you get to catch it in the film Host, which is a horror film set on Zoom. They have a seance on Zoom, and Gemma's fantastic in it. Her podcast, The Hobbycast, is at number four this week on the Pod 20. At number three, Bunga Bunga. Silvio Berlusconi was a charismatic, multi-millionaire real estate mogul who upended the Italian political order and hypnotised an entire nation. He was one of the longest-serving prime ministers of one of the world's wealthiest countries, until he was brought down by three powerful women and two words. Bunga Bunga. Hosted by the comedian Whitney Cummings, Bunga Bunga is an eight-part series about this true story. At number two, the Joe Rogan Experience. Joe's latest guest from his new studio in Austin, Texas, is the comedian Ron White. Which brings us to this week's number one. And for the second week in a row. Shagged, married, annoyed with Chris and Rosie Ramsey. That's it for episode 20 of The Pod 20. I'm Graham Mack and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Saruti Bala, Anna Smith, Ken Levine, BJ Shea and Gemma Moore. If you'd like to watch extended video chats with all of my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Next week, my special guest is the host of a podcast called An Englishman In. He's a bloke who sent the most famous email in the world. The email became part of what was called Russiagate. It was sent to Donald Trump Jr. and suggested links between Russia and the campaign to get Donald Trump elected in 2016. Rob, you've been a journalist, an artist manager, a promoter. How do you describe what you're doing right now? Uh, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, I suppose. Um, What do I do now is interesting. Uh, Somebody used this horrible phrase recently and said, you're like a media personality. And for me, they're only second to like, I don't know, the scum of the earth or something. So I don't really know what I am. But I, I, you know, I, I have been a journalist. I have been a publicist. I have been a music manager. And I wrote a book and I'm doing a podcast and I get interviewed about all things Trump and Russiagate primarily. Rob Goldstone, my special guest, next week on The Pod 20. And what will happen on the podcast radio chart by then? Will Chris and Rosie Ramsey hang on to the number one spot for a third week? Or will Joe Rogan finally make it to the top? Maybe your favourite podcast will be number one. Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.